Hello again, Pastor Deborah. For God be love, love is here ministries. And this is series two of mental health and the forever person. In the first series, which had seven episodes, we talked about a math, a new math, called one plus one plus one. This series, which is beginning uh, today, and I'll have many different episodes in it, is entitled The Three Realms. This is going to be a little introduction into these episodes that are coming. Oh my goodness, I got started a little bit early. <laughs> People are still finding their seats. Okay. Oh my goodness. Got a lot of people here today from all over the world because the videos are starting to get known and some of my stories, they're incredible, are starting to be heard because they have been silent for many, many years. But this new series, uh, both the webcams and the podcast, Mental Health and the Forever Person. This new series, like I said, is entitled The Three Rounds. In these episodes, this will be quite a few, we're going to dig a little deeper into ourselves. And the three realms that our mental health and our forever person live in. The first realm, which many of us are very aware of, is called the realm of the natural, the physical body, the temporary realm. The realm that we can see out here, when you look at people, that's what we see. So that's going to be the first realm, and I'm going to break it up into several episodes to go through it and then talk about the professions that deal with mental health, some of the history of mental health, and some of the different uh, terminology and definitions, because it's very real vital for you in your learning to understand terms and definitions. Most of us don't know what this people are talking to us, the doctors or our therapists in the mental health world. They sort of know. Uh, not a lot of people have a lot of history of it. We're getting it in bits and pieces uh, all over. A lot of wonderful sayings on LinkedIn, a lot of posts. A lot of people are trying so hard to encourage us and give us words and give us some life skills and life coaching to help us. But it's hard when you only have so many nanoseconds on LinkedIn for a post. Or you go to your therapist or your psychiatrist or your primary care physician, and they're under a lot of time pressure, and they got to sort of move us in and move us out. So what we're going to talk about in the first set of episodes that area of the three realms. The second realm will be the realm of your soul, which, as I have taught you before, has a conscious awareness part and a subconscious part. And we're going to talk about precepts and concepts and beliefs and thoughts and your mind and pictures and your five senses and how all of that is more intricately involved in your mental health. It should be pretty exciting if you've never studied it. Then the third realm is the realm of the spirit. It is the realm that the forever person lives in. 
Now, a lot of people know about it. I see them all the time in that realm. It's not a spooky realm. But some people make it very spooky, and it is very, it's very much with us here on planet Earth. It has good stuff and bad stuff in it. That is where a forever person lives. And I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about the forever person and how he is related to and how he is affected by and how the world, the realm of the natural, the physical body, and the soul affect it. So that all three realms are involved in mental health. And they're all involved in the healing part of it. And so I wanted to just give you this introduction before I get started with episode one, so you'll be aware of what's coming. There'll be lots of different episodes. You know me, I like to talk a lot. And I have a lot of people listening, and they're here with us now. And so I just wanted to let you know, welcome again to a new series of Mental Health and the Forever Person. The Three Realms. It will be up on the webcam, on YouTube, on the website, www.gopiloveishere.org. It will be put on the podcast of Mental Health and the Forever Person, which you can get to from the website. And I will also podcast it on out, and uh, so you can listen to it wherever you are. And uh, so this is real vital because the world and all humanity are dealing with the mental health and the forever person. Those two realms are connected. They are on planet Earth. And we have so many issues. And everybody, every nation, every organization, the UN, every loving faith-based person, every loving faith-based, every religion, everybody's trying to solve these problems. So I'm trying to come in and just give you some basic information that when you're out there and you're trying to get healed or find a proper uh, person to help you, that you'll have a little bit of information that you can ask some intelligent questions. You can research all this out. A lot of it's on YouTube. It's out on the Internet, Wikipedia. So you become an informed person so you can know how to find the healing that you need. And a little bit more about the mental health and the forever person. So this is the introduction to the new series of mental health and the forever person. The three realms. And they are again, that's right, the natural realm, which includes the physical body, that is correct. And the mental, emotional realm, that is correct. That deals with the soul, it's conscious. And it's subconscious. And the realm of the spirit. Yay! That's right. So we're going to be going into those in more detail. I can't take you right there, jump you off and throw you into the deep end of the pool where I live most of the time because it takes a lot of work to get there. you got to learn to swim. you got to learn to bob your head under the water, hold your breath, uh, all kinds of things before you can get a lot of realizations of what's going on. But welcome. I hope to get this up today as quick as I can. I am multitasking. Tomorrow, I, and which is Saturday and Sunday, I will be in two days of training on suicide prevention and support group for the community. Uh, one of the people that's learning how to uh, help them. Because it's suicide. It's in every place. It's ever, even in the jails and the prisons. 
We just heard about a big case about that one uh, right here in America. So is suicide real? Yes. Is it happening to, to every na- in every nation and every culture? Yes. Is it happening to every profession, men, boy, children? Yes. I have known five-year-old kids try to kill themselves. No, you don't. They come out of heavy-duty abuse, they will. So this is the introduction, the three rounds. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you come back. Love always and forever, Pastor Deborah. Look at the board, bank your notes, get you a new notebook tablet or whatever you use and make the notes. See you in a bit. Hello again. Pastor Deborah here. And this is another episode of Mental Health and the Forever Person. We are in series two called The Three Realms. In the first few episodes, we have been covering uh, different topics, such as the areas in which mental health professionals are looking at to determine if you have a mental health illness, disease, or disorder. Oh, excuse me again. I forgot I got started a little early. Yes, yes, okay. Everybody's here. They're sitting. Okay. Sometimes I get so eager to teach, I forget that the students, the disciples, uh, are coming and sitting down, and they're not quite settled. So forgive me. Forgive me. All right. In the first few episodes of the three rounds, we were talking about the different areas from the DSM where the mental health professionals who are licensed, educated, and trained to diagnose and treat a mental health disorder, illness, or sickness. And we have been through several episodes dealing with something called the personality disorders. That these were disorders of a system's personality. The one that they would see in the office that was having troubles with families, that was having troubles with the law, uh, out in the community. It's called your personality. And they went looking for to see how it was developed. If it was, say you were a 50-year-old person, but you were acting like a six-year-old. The professionals were saying, something's not right here. They don't know why, but that's not the personality of a 50-year-old should have. So they go looking and they use tests uh, that you take. They use interviews. Sometimes they will use your blood work. MRIs to see if there's a a head injury, any kind of blood imbalance, chemical imbalance, or if there's any kind of cancer or tumors to determine what could be causing a personality illness disorder. 
I am a trained a mental health professional. Has taught has been taught what is sort of a normal within a range personality. And if you are exhibiting, showing, displaying, demonstrating some things outside of that norm that the vast majority of people do not do, then they believe you have a personality disorder. And in the mental health world, which stepped into and became a part of the medical community, every mental health licensed person had to have classes in understanding medical issues, how you diagnose the medical issues. In fact, the DSM, which we're up to five or six now, I'm not sure, because it keeps getting revised, has some numbers, like 304.2. In that 304.2 numbered system, which is how in the medical community, doctors, insurance companies, doctor to doctor, nurses to doctors, that was the code that they were using to tell everybody what was wrong with you. You had a broken arm, a broken leg, a heart attack, numbers. So they took that system that the medical community, doctors and nurses, were already used to talking to each other in, also relaying to insurance companies, uh, to other professionals. They took that language of numbers for putting a certain number with a certain type of disorder, certain type of disease or illness. And then if another doctor got the records or you were talking or the insurance companies, they would see the number, which had a dot, and it could have some more numbers after it. Each number represented something. This was the language, the code, that they talked in. So when mental health professionals became licensed by the state or certified clinically at a national level or an international level, they had to know the codes. They had to know the language. And so the everything had a number. So in diagnosing, which means examining, trying to look at, ask questions of the patient, which you will see the two words that somebody who comes to a mental health person is either called a patient or a client. Those are medical terms that are used in this business, this industry of mental health counseling. So if you were a master's person, as I was, and you decided you want to go into private practice, help people, counsel with them, you had to go through the process of becoming licensed by your state. The department that I was licensed in was the Medical Quality and Assurance. My license that governed my business, my uh 
gaining my finances, was in the Department of Medical Quality Assurance. So the license said I was a medical person. I was given by law the rights to diagnose, examine, determine, come up with a conclusion of a medical disorder of the person that I am talking to. That his problem that he was brought to me or she was a medical problem. And I was to use the DSM when I even put it in my notes, when I filled out my insurance paperwork and went into court. That was the language I was to use. And we had to study the DSM. And it became a language of describing through numbers and saying, well, in order to tell that you've got depression, there's a category maybe of ten different things you could be demonstrating, telling me that you're doing or your family or something. And you have to have six out of those ten and have them for maybe six months. And if you had those six criteria out of the ten, for say six months or longer, then I could legally diagnose you by the DSM as being depressed. Now, there were different levels of depression based on your duration, your symptoms. Uh, remember, uh, the master's person, Ph.D. psychologist, had entered into the realm of the medical community with psychiatrists and cancer doctors and kidney doctors. You had to know a lot about the biological body, the language, about insurance. You called them clients, patients. So somebody in the mental health helping profession sort of stepped into and got absorbed by the medical community. And if somebody ended up in a psychiatric hospital, we're definitely in the medical field. And you would have special nurses and counselors that worked in those. You had the psychiatrist. And all the language and the talking was always in the terms of medical illnesses. So, in, this is sort of like a little review, in doing that, in the mental health and the forever person, that was in the first realm and the second realm, the realm of the physical body, the realm of the natural, and the realm of the soul, the conscious part of you, the subconscious part of you. So, a trained counselor was more of a medical person, having to know medical language. Another thing they did here in the state of Florida, I don't know about other states, but the word counseling was thrown around by many different people. And uh, we, we've had school guidance counselors. We have counselors at law. But when the mental health counselors came out, they put the word mental health 
in front of the word counseling. But what happened was also, up until this time, a lot of your pastoral, your faith-based people, they were also doing counseling of their members. They would set an appointment in their office. The member would come in, and they would do some ministerial counseling, a faith-based counseling session. And they would sit in their office. They would discuss some problems, marriage, parenting, maybe some depression. Somebody's family member just died. Some family issues between the children and the parents. And other people were suicidal. Some people were schizophrenic. For a long time, they would come to their pastors or their faith-based rabbis or their imams because they felt safe. And they felt that these people could pray with them. They could uh, read their holy book to them. They would hug them. They felt safe. They didn't feel like that this was a medical problem. If it was, their faith said, Okay, but maybe if I just get more prayer or something, and I don't want to go to a psychiatrist, I'll just go to my pastor, my faith-based leader, my pastor's wife, my imam, my rabbi. And together, he's an ed- they are educated people, and we will work this situation out. And I'll get some training and education and love and hugs. And if they are a professional, they will not divulge my secrets. They won't spread it around. They won't talk about it. So that went on for a long time. But here in Florida back in the maybe 80s, 90s, the Department of the Florida Psychological Association became very concerned that the people in the faith-based community were having a, doing this counseling of very serious uh, issues that were medical in nature, and a faith-based uh, rabbi, imam, uh, pastor was not trained to be a medical person who could diagnose and treat what had become and was nationally accepted medical problems. So the Florida Psychological Association, I believe this is correct, uh, went and took the word counseling. And they went into the state legislatures and they determined that that term, counseling, was a legal term. And it defined counseling in a medical community by medically trained professionals that were licensed by the Medical Quality Assurance Department of the state. And they were the ones who were to do the counseling. So what happened was the faith-based community the pastors, the imams, the rabbis, 
were no longer allowed legally to do counseling, even with their own members. And I can remember when I first got into this, if somebody came to you and you were, they were suicidal, you could maybe hug them, but you had to, by law, refer them to a licensed professional. Now, it could have been a licensed mental health counselor who was a faith-based person. That was okay. But they were licensed. They were under the medical quality assurance because they could provide legally this counseling to somebody and this word counseling had become a legal medical term. So a law got passed and a lot of your pastors actually quit doing a lot of counseling. Uh, They could do marriage counseling but anything else pretty much was considered by the state and the other mental health professions to be a medical illness and disorder. And so the faith-based community was sort of uh, locked out by law that they could not provide that service. And it was okay because many of these faith-based people had no training in depression, schizophrenia, suicide. They had no education in a schizoaffective personality, narcissistic personality. Uh, They had no training in any of the mood disorders or substance abuse. And they cared for the people, and they believed there was healing and hope, So it was really, it sort of was a good thing. The medical profession was trying to protect these very vulnerable people who seemed to be very sick and needed trained professionals to help them. So they took that word and legally by state legislature said only those people who were licensed by the quality, the Medical Quality Assurance Department had a license, could use that term, could provide that legal medical service. And there was one case in the newspapers that a uh, faith-based minister was working with a young man. And um, I have a newspaper article. It probably happened back in the 1900, not 1900, 1995, 98. And uh, the young man had many mental health disorders. And he was on medication. And he decided himself to stop taking his medication, which is a big problem. And he ended up committing suicide. Now, the faith-based minister, pastor, rabbi, whatever he was, had kept some notes. And what happened was the parents of the young man, he was over 21, the young man, sued this pastor, this faith-based person, for wrongful death. 
and uh, they went to court. And the parents accused this faith-based person of counseling when he wasn't trained. And their son was very suicidal and had other problems. And he wasn't. He should be held responsible financially and maybe even go to jail for criminal activity because he wasn't licensed as a mental health counselor or psychologist or psychiatrist. He wasn't in that realm, that world of mental health as a disease. So the parents did a lawsuit. And when it came time for this faith-based minister uh, to take the stand, he brought his notes from his classes, from his uh, sessions with this young man who is now dead and your notes actually become evidence uh, in the courtroom of what you write down so a lot of mental health and psychologists learn how to scribble very well but you can't read them they use shorthand you can't read them because they know their notes can be subpoenaed and go into court so in this trial uh this man who had been seeing this young boy was asked, what were you doing? Were you counseling? They asked him about the school he went to, his credentials, to provide this professional medical service to this young man who was suicidal, had other issues, and was on medication by a psychiatrist. And this uh, minister basically told him, I was not counseling. What I was doing was Bible, faith-based discipleship teaching. Teaching this young man what the book said, the Bible, how it related to his life, how he could go through his life, showed him scriptures, Talked about it from that. That's what I did. I was not providing a medical treatment. I was not approaching it from a medical standpoint. I was approaching it from a scriptural, biblical, in Islam, out of the Quran way. And showing him what the book said. And how that related to his life. And he was found not guilty of being a part of suicide or uh, doing counseling. Because he wasn't. He was doing what they you call in the faith-based discipleship work. You're teaching the word from the book. He's a student. He's learning. It was his, the boy's responsibility to take his medicine. I believe this minister actually told him, don't stop taking your medicine. Keep going to your psychiatrist. Don't stop taking your medicine. Even while we're talking and we're looking at our book that we believe in, how all of this relates to your life. I'm sure we receive prayer and maybe hugs and handshakes, and uh, I know in the, the newspaper article here that came out in the local newspaper, talked about how this pastor, this minister, had to explain in the courtroom 
what he did with this person who was on psychiatric medications, who was suicidal, probably some depression in there. He was over 21, so he didn't need his parents' permission. And how this pastor, this leader, was discipling him. The word disciple means student. He was not trying to be a mental health professional. He was not trying to do clinical work. He was not trying to do counseling from a mental health perspective. He also told the young boy to stay on his medication. Don't go off. To keep going to your psychiatrist, your other counselors you're seeing. But this happened and the lawsuit came. Now, the, the faith-based person was found not guilty. But this put a big fear into the pastors and the faith-based community. Don't even talk to your own members. Anything other than maybe marriage counseling. Because the problems that they want to talk to you about are of a medical nature. And only a medically trained and licensed person, psychiatrist, psychologist, licensed mental health counselor in Florida. In another state, it may have been licensed professional counselor, licensed social worker, licensed marriage and family therapist. Only those people were legally allowed to provide medical diagnosis and treatment of these medical disorders. So that was one of the areas we talked about, sort of still reviewing, in the three realms of the people. So the faith-based community did not want to be sued. And in most of their training, to be a pastor, a teacher, a missionary, an imam, a rabbi. There are not a lot of classes. There might be a few about how to counsel with these people. Most of them don't get the medical license. They're not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. They can be a psychiatrist and also have strong faith in what they believe and know both worlds, but they may not be a pastor. And so the, the lines were getting blurred between these two groups of professionals who were trying to help people. So what the faith-based community did was they sort of stepped back. And they said, okay, we won't counsel anybody. If, we, if somebody comes to us and they start talking, we will immediately refer them to one of our Christian or Jewish or Islamic or anything else licensed medical people that we know and trust and have a relationship with. And we will scoot this person on the first time they come in the office, give them the name, the address, call them up, maybe make appointment for them. And they are off our hands. We've done what is legally uh, required of us. And we turn our member, or somebody that we know who's come to us for help, over to somebody else 
who the state and the law says is more qualified to help them with this problem. So that's sort of what developed. And so most of your pastors, your imams, your teachers just backed away and stayed out of it. And lawsuits also in these realms, this is interesting, I'm going a different direction. I wanted to, but that's all right. Back in the 80s, a lot of people were going to a mental health profession. And they were getting hypnotized or doing deep imagery work or deep inner child work. Or they were uh, going back some way and they were the patients, as they're called, were remembering that somebody, their parents, brothers or sisters, aunts or uncles, neighborhood friends, had sexually or physically abused them when they were small children. But now we're 30 years, 40 years down the road, or 20, and they're just now remembering that. In the counseling session. So what the counselor would do is say, well, that's against the law. You need to report those people. But there was no limitations to the police. So many of these clients and patients would go to the police and make a police report against their family members, their neighbors, of something that had happened or didn't happen 20 or 30 years ago. And so they ended up in court. The parents of grown adult children, uh, neighbors, cousins were all being charged with sexual child abuse. And it got so bad, we're in court. And what happened was the people being accused could say, I didn't do it, never happened. And in their defense, they would blame the mental health counselor, the psychologist, the psychiatrist. And they would want to know, how did you get to that information? Did you hypnotize the person? If you did, were you qualified? Did you go through the classes? Did you have your certification? What kind of training did you have? What school did you go to? What do you know about sexual abuse? Repressed memories. How did you get to that? Did you suggest it? Let us see your notes. Did you suggest that this could be a possibility for the your patient's current depression, suicide, is they have a repressed memory of something that happened when they were very small. So the fingers started pointing the parents and the people who were being accused. I don't know if they did it or didn't do it, but they fought back. And they started pointing the finger back at the mental health counselors saying, you are implanting this idea into your patient's mind. You are suggesting this. The person that you're counseling that is paying you has no recollection of it when they walked in the office. You suggested this happened. 
Then you talk to them about it. And they are a vulnerable person. They are sick. You've told us that. They're in clinical counseling. They have a medical disorder. You are a licensed, trained medical professional. They are sick. They are vulnerable. And you have come in and suggested to them in some way, implanted in their thoughts that this sexual abuse occurred. When the parents said it never happened, and we we knew this person as a child, they lied all the time. Now you come in, therapist, and you are telling this court that you did, did not suggest this. The person came out, and they start looking at the client and the professional's relationship. And what got developed from this back in the 80s was the false memory syndrome. Parents and people were being accused, they felt falsely, from the medical professional, the licensed counselor, who maybe never studied memories, which is what I'm doing right now in a book, never studied the brain, just went to a school, never had any psychiatric training, never was in a hospital, never had that kind of level of seeing this from a pure medical thing, never was under a psychiatrist, and they didn't have any knowledge of sexual abuse, repressed memories. But back in the 80s, this was very popular. So a group got formed called the Repressed Memory Center. They were fighting back against the mental health people because they were saying these therapists who were not properly trained, they were stepping into an air be like somebody came to me and I said, well, maybe you got a brain tumor, you know. You got a lot of the symptoms. I read a book. I took one class. Maybe you have a brain tumor. That's what's going on. And I am guessing. And so we had lawsuits. We had courtrooms. We had uh, children against their parents. We had parents. We had counselors during this time. And then they talked about repressed memories. And then the therapist has to get on the stand. And they have to explain what school they went to, what classes they had, what uh, grades they took, who was their supervisors, what questions were on the state licensing, what was their qualifications to even bring this up. And a lot of the therapists themselves had been sexually abused and had issues. And so we had a big mess back in the 80s. And it got to be, I wasn't in the mental health counseling, but I stepped into that realm because people were trying to figure out what was wrong with somebody. Was there somebody to blame? Was it the family? Was it a school teacher? Was it a Catholic priest? Was it a pastor? Was it a neighborhood kid? For this person's problems that was being demonstrated in the office now as an adult. Everybody was trying to figure out what happened in childhood. Who was to blame? 
for these problems. And it got to be very messy. Still is, as you can see. Who's at blame for this medical condition that comes up in mental health? So that went on when this happened when I came in in about, oh gosh, 1981. You're in the state of Florida. It's when there was a grandfathering time coming in for several years, which I was grandfathered into the licensure. And then even to get my national clinical certification, I had to go back to graduate school and take five classes that had been added since I got grandfathered in. And what happens when you go through your master's program There's no requirements of you to go to a psychiatric hospital to work under a psychiatrist. You don't get much of the DSM or you don't learn anything about insurance companies, medical community. You learn nothing about the pecking order. And uh, how licensure came about here in the state of Florida and pretty much around the nation, I don't know about other countries yet, was that psychologists used to be employed by psychiatrists. Psychologists used to do the testing. Uh, they would do a lot of rat testing, a lot of uh, any kind of testing with a patient that was cognitive in the mind. They did that for the psychiatrists. But then eventually the psychologist branched off and went his own way. And he got licensed, they got the laws through, and they became their own professional entity. And what was happening is, there were people that were social workers, they'd been around a long time, and they worked in hospitals and with children and adoptions, and they had a national standard of education if you wanted to go into the children's area or the medical area. So they were kind of ahead of the mental health counselors. So mental, so how I looked at it, I don't know if it was true or not, but I felt there were some frustrated men with master's degrees or had gotten a Ph.D. in some form of psychology, and they wanted to be private practitioners, get that title of professional counselor, charge the insurance companies, charge, make some money, sort of have a professional license identity, start their own doctor's office, and they worked with the state so they could take their degree, maybe a master's, which is five or six years uh, of college, or a Ph.D. of something, uh, and they could become this licensed medical profession, set up their private practice, charge people insurance, make money. So... These group of people can't work with the legislators to provide this licensure with the medical quality assurance in the state of Florida. Because it's all done by state legislatures. There's laws. There's rules. Uh, The licensure has to go under a certain department. And then that department determines what level of education and training you'll have. And so back in about 1983... Uh, I think 85 uh, I got grandfathered into this and uh, then we we had to do continuing education and they were having problems in the medical community because a whole new group of people were coming in 
that really didn't sort of grow up with medical terms. They were sitting at the table with the psychiatrist. They were dealing with everything the psychiatrist was dealing with. And they were doing it in their private offices. How a lot of people got started was in mental health centers. And they would work with the indigent, sort of practice on them. And uh, then they would get their license and they'd go into private practice with people who were not indigent. So now they could charge the insurance companies and make money. And uh, they would have their own little office, sort of like a primary care doctor is what they were sort of doing. Didn't have anybody bother them. They could schedule their own appointments. They just charge the insurance companies or self-pay. And that was the system. And then what slowly developed was they, uh, those professions in the medical community wanted to make sure that your faith-based community did not do any of this counseling. So they passed the law and locked that term up, that it's a legal medical term. And um, so the pastors and the rabbis, they sort of backed away from helping their own members, refer them on over to the licensed people. And the faith-based community stepped back and didn't really get any training didn't sit on any coalitions, didn't go work into the indigent. They did go into the jails and would do Bible studies, but they never got any training in mental health, substance abuse, uh, personality disorders. But yet these people were in the community. They were children of their family members. They were the pastors themselves. They were members in the church. And so the the church leaders or the rabbis or the imams had to take a hands-off. So you actually got one whole group of caring individuals not able to be a part of the team. And people were sort of just referred on over to this other system. And hopefully the person that they were getting was a very loving person, kind to deal with this disease they had. So that's sort of when a client walks into it. You have very caring people, loving people, but their licensure, the system they work in, is really regulated by the license they have. And the license here in the state of Florida sits under the Medical Quality Assurance Department at the state level the rules and regulations that uh, oversee this is in that department. And uh, you're working with insurance companies. You're working with state legislators. Medicaid and Medicare are a federal program for paying for services. So you also had to meet Medicaid and Medicare qualifications in order to receive that payment. And that was one of the things that uh, the social workers did very well, and they had a lot of expertise in it. And the mental health counselors, licensed professional counselors, in order for you to see somebody on Medicare, which is somebody over 62, and Medicare to pay at least part of your hourly rate, 
you had to be able to be accepted and listed by Medicare. And so that goes up into Washington and into the HHS, the Health and Human Services Department, under Medicare. There was laws, rules, standards. There was things that you had to, your little title of licensed mental health counselor, licensed professional counselor. You had to be licensed within your state. had to be written in law, statutes, rules. So I used to have to go up there and do a lot of lobbying to help the mental health counselors who were licensed or licensed professional counselors who were really coming into it at the time, get those titles into the HHS rules and standards. And you had to work with the senators of your state, your congressmen. You had to understand how all of that works, so I had to do a lot of studying. Okay, in order to get paid. So a person who wants to come receive counseling from you, you had to be in good standing in your state, up with your CEUs. You had to uh, be listed that you would take Medicare. Medicaid was the same way. You had to have your profession had to be approved. So there was a lot more to this. And you had to get on uh, groups, uh, Blue Cross, Blue Shield. A lot of these different health insurance would have, you had to apply to be listed that their insurance would cover. TRICARE was out there for the military at the time. And you had to apply to them, send copies of your licensure, maybe your college uh, transcripts, uh, your certifications, in order for TRICARE, the military, to approve of you. So this was sort of the business side of trying to help people with a mental health problem. Lot to learn. It wasn't taught in school. Didn't really learn it when you were being supervised. You were just learning how to counsel. And it was such a, uh, at the time, what was happening Probably in about 98, 1999, there was a big uproar. A lot of faith-based people wanted to go see a faith-based counselor who was licensed. And there wasn't a lot of them. And they had money. They had insurance. So a lot of organizations would get somebody was just a member of a church, maybe taught a Sunday school, taught a class, and they volunteered to be the faith-based counselor for the organization. Because people were coming, they would hear a lot on radio stations, TV, go find a faith-based person to help you. Bring that component of spiritual care, spirituality. Find somebody that's legally qualified to treat you in the medical world and can also do this faith-based part with you. Pull out your book. Read the scriptures. Read the Quran. Pray with you. Encourage you. Hug you. Love on you. 
So patients were looking for those types of counselors. And in many organizations, the therapist was a very loving person. Went to a faith community faithfully. Did a lot of work in their their, uh, mosque. Was trained. Sitting under people. And so they would volunteer to be this person. Mainly in the Christian counseling area because there was a lot on the radio. There was a lot of different clinics coming out and they were talking from a Christian counseling perspective and there wasn't any training for the mental health counselors or psychologists at this time. There was no titles, no certifications, no license. So, but the patients were asking Do you have a Christian, a Jewish, uh, Islamic counselor that I can talk to? They wanted that added along with the mental health part. So many of your private places would find somebody in their system that went to a mosque, a temple, a church. They became the faith-based counselor. And what was happening is, then they were also at the same time telling pastors and ministers and imams, rabbis, you cannot do this work. You do not have this license as a mental health counselor or psychologist. Because this issue is a disease, illness, and you're not trained. But we're going to do your work. We're going to become the rabbis. We're going to become the discipleship teachers. We're going to become the pastors. We're going to become the ministers. We are going to become what you are to this client. Because we go to a church. We go to a synagogue. We've got some kind of title now called certified Christian faith-based counselor. We work in a faith-based community. We're qualified now to have a prayer discussion. Go through the book with them. Talk about the book, whatever book they were using. But you who run a synagogue, the imam, who studied the Quran, you who have gone to a, who have become a Protestant minister, marry people in the state, have a license, or are a certified Bible school teacher, Sunday school teacher, you're the children's minister, the youth pastor, you're the assistant pastor, you're the lay ministers, you're on the prayer team, you're not qualified to help this person. With this medical disease. You stand back. You stay away. We, who are licensed, are going to charge the insurance companies for a medical disease. But we're now going to add the faith part in it. Oh, we didn't go. We're not pastors. We don't have a church. We don't pray in our church. We just sit on the pew. We go to our, we don't do anything. But we love people. We'll put the Bible or the Quran in the room. And we can pull out the book. 
And if the patient wants that, we'll pray with them. But you, Pastor, who that's your profession, you can't do that. Because this is really a medical disease. But we're going to add the component you have to what we do, and we're going to deny you. That is what happened back in the 1980s and the early 90s, here at least in Florida. And it was nationwide. So those people who were very well trained, that was their profession to help from a spiritual side, were blocked off. Money was involved. A lot of the clinics became, this was a a faith-based clinic. All you had to do maybe is get a certification and you could be a Christian counselor. But you did nothing in your church or your community. You were not a Bible school teacher. You were not a Sunday school teacher. You just sat on the pews. But you were qualified, they said, because you had this license. To help people from a faith base. You could help. I walked into that mess. Strange. I just listened to people. I listened to how clinics would determine who was going to be the faith-based counselor. Somebody went to a Sunday school class. So they were designated it. So when a client came in and they said, do you have a Christian counselor or a I need somebody that's of the uh, Islamic faith or somebody of the Jewish faith. Oh, yeah, we have one here. And all that person did was attend those services. The money flowed. The client didn't know any better. The Quran, the Bible, prayer. I remember I told you. I was in a... I think I told you guys. I don't remember. It may have been somewhere else. This was not acceptable in the medical community. It, you did not combine faith. In hospitals, uh, something else was going on. And chaplains had been there. Chaplains have always been in war, on ships. They're on the battlefields. They're doing services with bombs going off. They've always been there. Dealing with the issues of life and death. They're the ones that marry you, bury you, see you in between. They've always been a part of your lives and the community's lives. And they're seen as people who can bless a community. Their words are powerful. They've always been there. But in this instance, where money from insurance companies came from having clients they were not welcomed because this disease, these disorders, were considered medical. And you had to have this license that the state said you had to have to receive the money. And so in the private offices, in the clinics, in the hospitals, the faith-based community was left out. Now, when I got into this, I started seeing this. It was very strange. I, I didn't understand either world very well at my beginning. And I even challenged a Ph.D. psychologist. He was a licensed marriage and family therapist. Ph.D. I don't know what his Ph. was in. 
He had been a um, in the prisons. I know that. I don't know what he did. Then he was an adolescent. He worked in a psychiatric hospital, sort of part-time, doing some testing. But in his private practice, his expertise was marriage, working with couples. Which, boy, do we need that. So one day, I was walking down the hallway, and I asked him a question. I said, could you explain to me how marriage problems and you presenting yourself to the community as a marriage counselor was a medical disorder that is governed to be paid by insurance companies. I was confused how a marriage problem where marriage counseling was necessary was considered by the insurance companies as a medical disorder, illness, and disease. Because he was licensed through the same department of the state of Florida that I was, the medical quality assurance. He explained to me, because he put himself out, that was his expertise, marriage counseling therapist. So he explained to me that when he got a couple referred to him based on his advertising, Okay. As a marriage professional, counselor, therapist, they would come in, a couple would come in, or a, one person, and they would talk about their marriage on the initial interview or something. Well, he had to define some medical disorder disease. So he told me, he said, well, what I do is I find that one of the people had depression. And that is the problem for the marriage problems. So I take that one person who's depressed and meets the criteria of the DSM that would meet the criteria for payment. And I charge the insurance companies for that one person. Now, the couple that comes in does not know that I'm doing that. They just give me their insurance card or they pay cash. And then it was up to the therapist to make everything work for the insurance company. So I'm sitting there scratching my head. You put yourself out as a marriage therapist. That's your expertise. That's your advertisement, your post. That's your reputation, your identity. We need marriage counselors. Because marriages are in a mess. Partnership are in a mess. A lot of problems. Domestic violence, sexual abuse, good Yes, we need those people. But I couldn't understand how a marriage became a disease that the insurance company would pay for. So he explained it to me. So I realized it wasn't you were sort of fabricating one of the people in the marriage to have a medical disease. And that was what was causing the marriage problems. And you'd get his money from the insurance companies. Now, I thought there was something wrong with that. I couldn't quite get it all together. I thought this person was ripping off the system for the money, misrepresenting himself in the community, 
to get money from insurance companies, sort of money laundering, misrepresenting to the people who had marriage problems. Sure, in the course of talking to people, you discover issues. But he was putting, I'm going to solve your marriage. I'm going to bring love and kindness. I'm a marriage person. And that's what people came to him for. Then they seemed to discover they got a lot of mental health illnesses. I was not comfortable in that kind of stuff. I was not comfortable portraying yourself and charging for something else. I just walked down the hall exasperated, going, "Uh uh-huh, okay. Another piece of information that came into me that was helping me to change, to eventually leave the mental health world and become a pastor and walk between the two. So I had lots of information about mental health. I saw the system from behind the, the walls. I saw the system of uh, promoting yourself. I saw the system of what people would do just to get money. Anybody that went to a church could be a Christian counselor. Uh, It was money-oriented. I saw the pecking orders. There's a great book I read. It's called Why Christians Cannot Trust Psychology. At this time, I'm reading it. I'm in a transition time. And what the story was that a lady had come into a church. And she heard a pastor preach about all you need is this, uh, your faith. We'd say, I could relate it. All you need is um, Allah. All you need is Christ Jesus. Ah, just Buddha. Get more of that in your life. And... The help is there, and they can help you. So she believed that. So she made an appointment with the pastor. And the next week, she went to his office and said, Look, I've been schizophrenic, got all these mental health things, but I believe what you said. If I uh, pursue more faith, stay in church, that they can help. And he goes, Ma'am, I am not qualified to help you. But she said, Sir, you told me in church. But there was help. And this Jesus guy could help me if I'd let him. So I'm here. Help me. You're his representative. And the pastor said, ma'am, I'm not qualified. She said, look, I'm schizophrenic, been in and out of psychiatric hospitals. I want help. They did not help. I believe what you told me about this Jesus guy. No, please help me. He had to refer her. Ma'am, I'm not qualified with that. So here's a lady sitting in the audience, believing what the pastor said. But there was hope and this way of believing in this man and this God named Jesus could help her. She makes an appointment. He says, I ain't qualified to help you. You got to go over here. So now the lady is confused. I was confused. And even the pastor got confused in his book. And so he went to a friend of his, who was a psychologist, to say, Am I just irrelevant 
No, not important to help people with schizophrenia, suicide, am I? There's nothing I have to offer them. And the psychologist friend who was a Christian said, yep, you're right. Because this is a medical issue, suicide, depression, schizophrenia, anxiety, it's all medical. You're not trained. I love you, but you're not trained for this. Yes, you are irrelevant, and anything you have to say about anything that you have is irrelevant and will not count. Can't help. It's a medical problem. Only medically trained, licensed people can help. He says, that ain't right. Are you sure? He says, yeah, let's go ask our buddy, the psychiatrist. So they get to this psychiatrist, who is a lovely Christian man, their friend. He said, neither one of you can help. You aren't qualified. You're not a medical doctor. This is a pure schizophrenia, suicide, depression, anxiety, personality problems, emotional problems. They are medical. Only I, the psychiatrist, who has a medical degree and has three years of psychiatry and some more in residency, only I am qualified to help these people. I'm up here. You, Mr. Psychologist, cannot help. You, Pastor, cannot help. Just me. Was that a shocker to that pastor? So he goes through the whole thing, and he he goes on a journey in this book called Why Christians Can't Trust It. And he discovers a lot of things about what his friends, who are professional people, in a profession of helping people, what they believe about his profession, what they believe about his training, what they believe who is going to help these people, who's qualified. It really wasn't about getting the money. The money comes based on your qualifications. It was, are you qualified? Are you in the right profession? Do you have the right training? If the schizophrenia and the depression and the anxiety was a medical disorder, disease, illness, then only a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, if you're dealing with the brain, brain disease, brain problems, only him or her was qualified to treat this. And anybody who had been trained with a psychiatrist in a hospital was qualified to do any kind of counseling with these people. This was a deep pecking order. I got into it and knew nothing about it. But I learned. I go, ooh, I'm way down here. I'm at the bottom of the bottom, which was okay because I grew up in the military. And the military, you know, you have your enlisted ranks. Then you have your officers and you have your ranks to the very top. Okay. I, was used to, I was used to pecking orders. You stay in your place. You respect the people above you. Because they got more schooling. They've been in the military longer. Okay. Pass the test. And you respect the people below you. So I fit okay. It didn't bother me. But for a lot of people, it was a, bothered them. They thought they were higher up in the pecking order. They thought they were equal to the other professions. They thought that what they had studied was just as valuable 
and as equal as the other people. And in this book, this pastor came to realize that ain't the truth. So it's a good book. I read it. still have it. Read it and read it and read it and read it and reread it. So I was on this journey to find out about mental health in the forever books. And this tape, I hope, is just a little bit more. I think on the next one, I think this is episode 8. In episode 9, I'm going to talk about substance abuse, which is another area that the mental health professionals look at to see if your biological body or your mind is addicted to any kind of substance. It doesn't matter what it is. A lot of people think it's just drugs. But it could be smells, could be food, could be exercise, could be sex, could be just um, now they're discovering about the games and the iPhones. The lights are causing addictions. A lot of people do the test. If you can't put your phone down and not look at it, you're addicted. You're addicted to what's going on, how many likes do I have. So addiction is sort of spreading out. Beyond substance, alcohol, okay? We've always had alcohol. We've always had drunks. We've always had abusers of it. That's nothing new. Always had drugs, opium, cocaine, heroin. Always been here. But a lot of it stayed in the um, inner cities, the villages. Uh, We've had prescription medication where people overdose. We've always had that. And um, we've always had food addictions. We've always had sex addictions. We've always had addictions to buying things because it makes you happy. So there was a lot of substance abuse addictions, people eating strange things, drinking strange stuff. You could become an an addict of exercise because when you exercise, endorphins go off, you feel good, you love that feeling, so you keep exercising. They found out also now the nose uh, aromas can cause an addiction because it changes chemistry up here. And then they can um, shopping, buying, buying, buying when you don't. Hoarding, is that an addiction? When you're a hoarder, is that an addiction? Um, Is an addiction, let's say... um, You're always wanting candy, sugar. Is that an addiction? Now they have proven, they are testing, doing research, and you get addicted to your Facebook page, getting the likes, having the approval. So you're addicted to somebody saying, I like what you do, I like your picture. You can't put it down. You get nervous, upset if you are not online. If you're not getting the likes, are you addicted? So they're having to look at addiction from many different perspectives now, more than just substance. And there are sex is another one. So they're looking, and the testing is going on. They're looking at the body, the biological brain, the hormones, the chemistry to see. So hopefully that will be next tape. But this one, I just wanted to bring in a little bit more 
about mental health and its relationship, its intersection with the faith-based community. And how, I don't know about other states, but in the state of Florida, I had some national stuff and how it worked. So I hope you enjoy this. You're just getting some basic information, some things maybe you have not heard of or thought of and don't really know anything about and uh, the professions of helping people. And um, so enjoy. Come back again. This is episode eight of the three rounds. We're sort of in the first two. Uh, We haven't got into the forever person yet. We're just looking at the profession, the people, the intersection, terms, terminology, some history that's happened, how the faith-based communities intersected, got split apart, uh, more about the DSM. The more education you have as a client or a patient or somebody needing help, the more informed you are and the better you can get help for yourself. And you don't get led down a path that maybe you don't want to go down. And you trust the person that you are seeking help from. So enjoy. This is Episode 8, Series 2, The Three Rounds. And this is Pastor Deborah, and I'm going to end now because I'm going to try to do another webcam on another subject. Enjoy. I leave the board up for you for just a few seconds. Love you. Always be looking out for yourself and others. Educate yourself. Learn. Get knowledge. Research. Be informed. Even if you got a lot of issues. Learn. There's help. Some wonderful people out there of every profession. Love you. There is hope. We'll get through this together. Pastor Deb.